at a very critical point in our history, a very exciting point as well. Uh, this is the year that, Lord willing, we are intending to be sending out the Horvaths to Hungary. Uh, Kale and Brooke are currently on the road, still out in the Kansas City area, and visiting more churches and raising support for that. Um, others are preparing as well. We heard from the Van Sickles and such, and um, it, there's just on the horizon some, some tremendous new things for us that we can get pretty excited about. Now, typically in churches all across the country, you're going to, you know, a lot of people are going to leverage this idea of casting vision in the year 2020 and saying that it's our 2020 vision, uh, obviously a euphemism that you can see things clearly, right? And, and you know, I don't want to overdo the shtick on 2020, but I do think that it's important at any time in our history we should be able to see things clearly. And that certainly would be our goal as a church without question. Um, for those of you that are regular attenders, members, regular attenders of First Baptist Church, you love the Lord, you study His Word, you faithfully hear and listen and follow, I, I would say that you all can see the horizon clearly. In other words, you, you have a, a good understanding of the general teaching of the Word of God. You have a, a good understanding of our responsibility in Christ and some of the reasons He left us here on this earth. You know, the Bible obviously gives us all of that information. You understand our responsibility before the Lord, the very singular reason that He left us here on earth, and that is the Great Commission. And the Great Commission is referenced in a lot of different places. We frequently go to Matthew 28, where in verses 19 and 20, Go ye therefore and teach or make disciples of all nations. And so we're commanded to take the gospel to all nations. If God were singularly interested in our personal benefit in eternity with Him, it's often been said that the moment you received Him as your Savior, He'd have just raptured you out immediately to heaven. But He left us here on earth to continue to struggle through this life in the flesh, yet with new life inside of us, for a reason. And that is so that we can be the witnesses to other people so that they can come to know the Lord Jesus Christ. And we're to do that not just in our Jerusalem, but to the uttermost parts of the earth. And so this is the commandment. This is the, this is the vision of the horizon. This is what God wants everybody to see and understand. And I'd say most all of you probably understand that. So my desire for us here at First Baptist Church, and specifically this year, is that we all now can see ourselves more clearly in light of that horizon. In other words, if you want to see yourself, you look in the mirror, right? And so the Bible is that mirror. We see that in James chapter 1, starting in verse 22, where we're exhorted, it says, But be ye doers of the word, and not hearers only, deceiving your own selves. So somebody who comes regularly and hears the word of God, and hears the word of God, and hears the word of God, and never puts it into practice, the Bible says you're deceiving yourself. What are you deceiving yourself? You're deceiving yourself into thinking you're okay because you just come and listen. And if you're not acting upon the things that you hear and know, well, you, you've got a, a, a skewed view of you. <laughs> Say that five times fast. Let's go back to James 1.23. For if any be a hearer of the word and not a doer, He's like unto a man beholding his natural face in a glass. 
For he beholdeth himself, and goeth his way, and straightway forgetteth what manner of man he was. But whoso looketh into the perfect law of liberty, the word of God, and continueth therein, he being not a forgetful hearer, but a doer of the work, this man shall be blessed in his deed. Who doesn't want that? Who doesn't want to be blessed in your deeds for the Lord? The Lord says the way to do that is is to gaze into the perfect law of liberty, see yourself the way the Lord sees you, and agree with that and become a doer of the things he shows you. So this is a good way to start off our decade, isn't it? This is where we're going to start. Our 2020 vision should allow us to see our role, and I don't mean our First Baptist Church as a body, I mean each and every one of our roles in God's great commission clearly. In other words, I would like for each of you individually to consider this question. How can I make the Great Commission personal? Think about that. Don't worry about the other people. Don't worry about others who organize things. Don't worry about what some people say or think or do and don't do and should do. Me. What can I do to make the Great Commission my own? What can be my role in this vision of the horizon that God's left for us? I could phrase it this way. Who in the body of Christ is exempt from the responsibility of the Great Commission? I mean, really, with your Bible in hand, could you even dare try and propose the idea that anybody who's truly born again is exempt from the requirements of the Great Commission. Nobody would say that out loud. You'd be embarrassed if you said that out loud. If God is no respecter of persons, and he is no respecter of persons, does that not mean that we are all equally responsible to participate? But I want you to understand something, because too often when we talk about the subject of foreign missions especially, taking the gospel to all the nations, when we talk about foreign missions, most of you will sit by and know deep in your soul that you're never going to volunteer to move halfway across the world. So somehow, some of you as a result may find yourself excusing yourself because you know you're never going to change your address. Excusing yourself from the responsibility of the Great Commission. You know how people get saved. You know Romans 10, 13, for whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. But sometimes you don't continue and read the verses that come after that where it says, how then shall they call in on him in whom they've not believed? And how shall they believe in him in whom they've not heard? And how shall they hear without a preacher? And how shall they preach except they be sent? Listen, I love structure like this in the Scripture. I love a a, a logical breakdown and a sequencing of truth in the Bible because Romans 10, 13, 14, and 15 make it very clear that in order to be saved, you have to call on the Lord. But in order to call on the Lord, you have to believe. And in order to believe, you need to hear. And in order to hear, somebody needed to preach And in order for somebody to preach, another group of people have to send them. If we're not involved in sending people to the ends of the earth, well, nobody's getting saved. It's just that simple. 
No one can get saved unless preachers are sent to preach the gospel. And since God is the one who sends, right? Matthew 9, 38, you know that, right? Where Jesus says, pray ye therefore the Lord of the harvest, that he, the Lord of the harvest, will send forth laborers into not the harvest. It's his harvest. The Lord of the harvest is the one who sends forth the laborers into his harvest. And we don't have the time to do this Bible study today, but most of you are Bible literate, you understand that the way, the vehicle that God uses to send forth laborers into his harvest is the local church. That's Acts chapter 13, where the leaders of the church, the Holy Ghost said, separate unto me Barnabas and Saul for the work whereunto I have called them. So the leaders of the church separate Barnabas and Saul. They lay their hands on them. They, the church, sends them away. The very next verse says, and being sent forth by the Holy Ghost... Because that's how God sends. He sends through the vehicle of the local church. And oh yes, since we are the local church, it's not just some nebulous idea. It's not just the group of pastoral leaders that receive a salary. The church is you. You're the church. We're the church. The Lord sends forth laborers. Through the church. That's all of us. We're all to be involved in this. This is exactly what he intends for all of us to do. Therefore, we can certainly conclude that sending can't be achieved alone. It can't possibly be achieved alone. By definition of the term, sending requires that someone send someone or something else someplace else. Nobody's doing that on their own, right? It requires teamwork. And what I want each and every one of you to see clearly with 2020 vision today is that means that you, each and every one of you, I don't care where you've been. I don't care how you've failed. I don't care about your pedigree or lack thereof. You are needed in this mission. You have a valuable role in this mission that God has uniquely designed and carved out for you to fulfill. You are so important. So the Apostle Paul writes things like 2 Corinthians 6.1 where he says, We then, as workers together with him, we are all working together and in conjunction with the Lord, of course. We then, as workers together with him, beseech you also that you receive not the grace of God in vain. You see, grace, by definition, well, that's a gift. Unmerited favor, some would say. Somebody gives you a gift you don't deserve. They do something nice for you. That's grace. By grace, we are saved. It's not by works that we have done, right? It's by his mercy and his his righteousness. He He took our place. He gifted to us the gift of eternal life in Jesus Christ. That grace then extends to our life of ministry, and God has given to us all gifts. They're called spiritual gifts. And these spiritual gifts are given to us so that we would do a spiritual work. And we know what that work is because we have a clear vision of that horizon to get the gospel to the ends of the earth. So when we read in Ephesians 2.10 that we are as workmanship created in Christ Jesus unto good 
spiritual works which God hath before ordained that we should walk in them. But if we don't walk in them, if we don't participate, then those gifts of grace that are given to us, they're wasted on us, aren't they? It's like somebody giving you tools to get a job done. You don't go get the job done. Well, we just wasted money on those tools. God gave you the tools to get the Great Commission done. If you don't help get the Great Commission done, well, that grace is in vain. That grace has been given in vain. It's a team effort. It requires a team of pastors to agree to send a family out as missionaries, like the church did in Antioch. Maybe that missionary is sent together with others as a team of workers. Paul had Barnabas, he had Silas, he had Timothy, he had Titus, he had Luke, he had others. And certainly the missionary can't go anywhere without a team of supporters. So today I've chosen a title for the message called Hold the Rope or Holding the Rope. It's a term that's widely used in reference to teamwork and trusting others to be there for you and not let you down. I'm trusting you to hold the rope. If I'm lowered into a pit and, and, and please hold on to that rope, don't let me down, don't let me fall. And it's a term that's used in sports, it's used in business. But do you know where that term originated? It originated in missions. That's where it came from. Let me tell you the story of how we got that phrase. You see, there was a group of Baptist ministers in Northampton, England, that met to discuss this topic, the duty of Christians to attempt to spread the gospel amongst heathen nations. There was a man named William Carey that was present, and history says the proposal fell amongst them as a bombshell, and the young man was almost shouted down by those who thought such a scheme impracticable and wild. Andrew Fuller, who eventually became a great supporter of Carey, confessed that he himself found this, read himself ready to exclaim, if the Lord would make windows in heaven, might this thing be, is it possible? But Carey was not going to be discouraged. He brought forward the topic again and again, and he wrote the pamphlet entitled The Inquiry on this very subject. It was at this time, back in the year 1792, that he preached his famous sermon from Isaiah 54, verses 2 and 3, and summed up its teaching in these two important statements. Expect great things from God and attempt great things for God. This sermon led to the formation of the Baptist Missionary Society and Carey, at the age of 33, proved his sincerity by volunteering to be its first messenger to the heathen. Andrew Fuller once said, There's a gold mine in India, but it seems as deep as the center of the earth. Who will venture to explore it? I will go down, responded William Carey, in words never to be forgotten. But remember, you must hold the rope. You must hold the rope. Y'all, we are in the last days of the church age. This may not be the golden age of missions of the Philadelphian church period that William Carey was a part of. But very obviously and logically, every day that clicks off proves to be more urgent for us to get the message out to the ends of the earth before it's too late. There will come a day soon and very soon 
that that trumpet will blow and the church will be taken out and it will be too late. It'll be too late. We still have to take this mission seriously. So let's just take a minute, ask the Lord to laser focus our minds on this and we'll continue with our outline. Lord Jesus, I do pray that the eyes of our understanding would be enlightened. I do pray that we would know what is the hope of your calling and the riches of the glory of your inheritance in the saints. I pray that you would give us this 2020 vision and that we could see ourselves clearly in the mirror of your word, the perfect law of liberty, that we would not just be hearers of your word, but we would be doers of your word, that we would understand that we all, each and every one of us, have a critically important role to play in the fulfilling of your great co-mission. And thank you for allowing us to be co-laborers with you. You don't need us, but you want us. Let it never be said that we don't want you. We don't want a part of your work. This is the purpose for which we live that is so much greater than we are. It gives our life meaning and fulfillment. Fill us with that today. Pray in Christ's name. Amen. So the Great Commission obviously has this emphasis, go ye. And we're going to break that down into two specific questions to consider. The first one will be, will you obey? Will you go by going? And, and we're going to be looking in Philippians chapter 3 in just a moment to do that. So if you haven't opened your Bibles, Philippians 3 would be the place. So missionary work, missions, is the work of fulfilling the Great Commission in every single generation. Assume that the golden age of missions 150 years ago, assume that they completed the task and got the gospel to every human being back then. Whether they did or they didn't, it doesn't really matter. The issue is this, all those people that may have heard it back then are now dead. And that every day there's more people being born. We rejoice and every time God blesses our families with a new cute little baby. And all, but that means there's more ever dying, never dying souls that are being born into this world every day. And we have to get the gospel to each and every one of them. Missions is the work of every single generation. But as I mentioned earlier, the problem is, is that there's actually a very, and I mean very small percentage of us that will actually go and relocate to some foreign location, despite the fact that the Bible states very clearly things like Matthew 28, go ye therefore and teach all the nations. Mark 16, 15, go ye into all the world. Acts 1, 8, right? You'll receive power after the Holy Ghost has come upon you. You shall be witnesses unto me. Notice, both in Jerusalem and in Judea, Samaria, and the uttermost. Not either or, but both and. And these things are written to us very, very clearly. It makes me wonder why it is then that such a small percentage of people actually go. Well, I think I know the answer. I talk to people about this subject all the time, and the typical answer that I receive is, well, God hasn't called me to go. Okay, that's fair. With that answer and with that thought in mind, I, I want to ask you another question or a series of questions for your consideration. 
Has God called you to attend church? Has God called you to love one another? Has God called you to evangelize? Has God called you to contribute financially to the work of the Lord? In other words, are you sitting around doing nothing and waiting for some supernatural experience to rain down on you like fairy dust until you get some magical feeling like, oh, God called me to go to church today. No, you're not doing any of that. Of course you're not doing any of that. Why is that? Because the Bible commands that you should do those things. And you love the Lord and you respect his word and you just obey. You just do what you're supposed to do. And I know that every Sunday you don't always feel like it. But you set a discipline in your life and you do it anyway. God bless you for that. So, concerning missions, I have to ask this question. Why do you need a call when you have a command? Why do you need a call? Why do you need some special pixie dust to rain down on you? Why do you need to fall asleep in the middle of the night and and be awoken to a storm like Dorothy in Kansas and the windows are blowing and your bed starts spinning and you land in a... That's not happening. Why do you need to wait for a call when God's already given you a command? Why don't we all just get up and leave? Well, not not yet. (laughs) Look, the Great Commission is the one thing that God left us here on this earth to do, amen? Think about it. And because it is the one singular thing he wants us to do, he didn't complicate it. He didn't make it difficult. It's very simple, right? And we're going to see that in the book of Philippians. And in chapter number 3, specifically, where the Apostle Paul laser focuses in on his purpose for living. We're going to pick it up in verse number 12. Not as though I had already attained, either were already perfect, but I follow after. If that, I may apprehend that, for which also I am apprehended of Christ Jesus. Let me stop there for a second. This apprehending that he's talking about, I am apprehended of Christ Jesus to do something. In other words, Jesus Christ has gotten a hold of my life and he has set a purpose for my life. And Paul said, I'm, I'm going to shoot for that I may apprehend the very purpose for which God has apprehended me. Brethren, I count not myself to have apprehended. I'm still working on it. But notice, this one thing I do forgetting those things which are behind and reaching forth unto those things which are before, I press toward the mark for the prize of the high calling of God in Christ Jesus. You say, wait a minute, Paul had a calling. Yes, yes, he recognizes the calling on his life. What exactly is his high calling? I think it comes directly from the context, of course, of the Scripture. Go back a few verses to verse number 10, where he says that I may know him, and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings being made conformable unto his death. Get this, the highest calling of all is knowing Jesus Christ personally. 
personally, individually in your life. I'm not talking about being religious. I'm not talking about having your attendance pin in Sunday school. I'm not talking about giving money to the church and doing good deeds. I am talking about a personal, living, vibrant relationship with the Lord of the universe in your heart and your soul, more and more getting to know him more closely and more intimately every single day. That is the high calling of our lives. And leaving everything else behind, I'm going to press toward that high calling. That's what he is apprehended for. You know how you really get to know somebody better and better and better? You know that. The way you get to know somebody the best is by sharing common experiences together. Isn't that right? In other words, you probably are closer to your spouse if you're married than anyone else. And if you're not married, you probably have a best friend and you're closer to that person than anyone else. Why? Because you do so many things together. You know each other. How are we going to know the Lord more and more and more? By having more and more shared experiences with him, Jesus Christ obviously is the ultimate missionary, having left his very comfortable home in glory, having come down to this sin-stained world to live as we live and to suffer and ultimately give away his life so that we could have eternal life. How can we make such application in our life? Well, it's the Great Commission. He's motivated by his great love, John three sixteen. For God so loved the world right? He's moved with compassion, Matthew 9, 36. Jesus didn't look on the multitudes as sheep without a shepherd and say he felt compassion. He was moved to do something. He was moved with compassion. You know him best by sharing common experiences with him, and you know him best by obeying him the most. Jesus could say, to know me is to love me. And in John 14, 15, if you love me, you keep my commandments. You keep my commandments. That singular choice, that response to know Jesus, it resulted in Paul's surrender to do whatever it took to get the gospel to the uttermost. And he did that very thing. We read about it in Romans 15, 19, through mighty signs and wonders by the power of the Spirit of God, so that from Jerusalem and roundabout unto Illyricum, I have fully preached the gospel of Christ. Paul literally was a witness both in Jerusalem and worked his way outward unto Illyricum, which arguably could have been the uttermost part of the known world of his day. That pursuit, the pursuit of the high calling, resulted in suffering. But that was okay because Paul knew that it was the fellowship of his sufferings by sharing common experiences. And all that suffering just made that personal fellowship with Jesus Christ even sweeter. You know that's true. If you've ever suffered in your life, and I mean for righteousness sake, not for your own foolishness sake. If you have suffered for righteousness sake, standing on what is right and true and holy, and suffered as a result, it's not pleasant, you don't enjoy it, you wouldn't necessarily want to sign up for it again. But has the Lord ever been sweeter and closer than in those moments? Never. Never. Because it's the fellowship of his sufferings, and we're so afraid to have anything bad happen to us, we just quit getting involved. 
What did Paul suffer exactly? Well, go back in Philippians 3 and go to verse 7 and 8. What things were gained to me, those I counted loss for Christ, yea, doubtless, and I count all things but loss for the excellency of the knowledge of Christ Jesus my Lord, that one thing, his high calling, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things and do count them but dung. You don't really need a modern translation of that, do you? We're good with that? Okay. I count them but dung that I may win Christ. You see, Paul was a highly respected Pharisee. And so he lost his position. He lost his privilege. He lost his respect in society. All of his years of education wasted. He lost it all. Some argue he lost his family. That he had a wife and he lost her. Well, the Bible doesn't specifically say so, so you may not necessarily agree, but he was a part of the Sanhedrin, and history tells us that members of the Sanhedrin would have been married. We know that Paul was not married as he carried out his ministry, and that's a, that's a consideration at least. We know that he had a thorn in the flesh, right? A messenger of Satan sent to buffet him, and the Lord allowed it to happen. He suffered the loss of all things. Why did he suffer the loss of all things? Because he preached repentance, that's why. Galatians 5.11, he says, And I, brethren, if I yet preach circumcision, why do I yet suffer persecution? Then is the offense of the cross ceased. He preached the cross of Jesus Christ. He didn't preach religious tradition of Jewish circumcision and rites and rituals. He didn't preach a system of human works and checking the boxes and just showing up when you're supposed to and do the things you're supposed to. He preached that every individual soul had to surrender their heart and their will before the Lord of glory as sinners needing a Savior. And because he preached that, salvation by grace through faith alone, not Jewish Old Testament traditions, he suffered. But not just because he preached the new message, because he preached it to Gentiles. And the word Gentiles in your Bible is frequently translated also as nations. Go ye therefore and teach all Gentiles. Teach all nations. That's what Paul did. Because he took the gospel to the Gentiles, well, he suffered. Paul, after a couple of missionary journeys, he goes back to Jerusalem after being warned not to, and he gives his testimony before the Jews there in Acts 22, and he's recounting what happened to him. And in Acts 22, 21, it says this, And he said unto me, Depart, for I will send thee far hence. This is the Lord speaking to Paul. He's recounting. Depart, for I will send thee far hence unto the Gentiles, unto the nations. And they, the Jewish audience, gave him audience unto this word. That word Gentiles that fired them up and then lifted up their voices and said away with such a fellow from the earth for it is not fit that he should live 
because Paul made the singular choice to know Christ and to, and to share common experiences and to respond and do exactly what he did and to carry the gospel to the world, well, he suffered. He suffered. Philippians 3.10, it not only talks about the fellowship of his suffering, but it goes on and it says, being made conformable unto not just death, but unto his death, unto his death. Jesus' death was crucifixion. I don't know if you know it or not, but crucifixion ultimately is suffocation. And suffocation is a slow death. On the cross, you continue to live as long as you want to live. You hang there and you slump down with your hands nailed and, and it's awful, miserable pain and I can't even imagine but as long as you can push up on those nails and open up the passageway and take another breath, you can continue to live. And the only time you ultimately die in crucifixion is when you just decide, I don't want to live anymore. I don't want to push up on the nail anymore. I'm done. So Jesus said in John 10, 17, Therefore doth my Father love me, because I lay down my life, that I might take it again. No man taketh it from me. I lay it down to myself. You see, friends, spiritually speaking, you die when you decide to die. The Lord wants you to lay it down willingly, being made conformable unto his death. Who will surrender their life today? Who will pursue one thing, the high calling of knowing Jesus ever more intimately, Loving him supremely. You see, we still need men and women who will obey the Great Commission and go into all the world. Praise God for the Horvaths. Praise God for all the others who have and will continue to desire to go and to do that. We still need more. It's a great big world. Why do you continue to sit and wait for somebody else to do it? I'm going to read you another story from history, a man named Alexander Duff. He was a Scottish missionary to India. He lived in the 19th century. And when he was an old man, missionary Alexander Duff returned to his homeland of Scotland to die. There, during the General Assembly of the Church of Scotland, Dr. Duff addressed the meeting and made strong appeal for young people to volunteer their lives for India. But no one responded. Under the strain of the appeal, the aged missionary fainted and sank to the floor and was carried off the platform. The doctor came and bent over the old veteran and was examining his heart when suddenly the veteran opened his eyes and asked, Where am I? Where am I? Lie still, urged the physician. Your heart is very weak. The old warrior interrupted, But I must finish my appeal. Take me back. I haven't finished my appeal yet. Again, the doctor cautioned, lie still, you're too weak to go back. But the missionary would not be stopped. Gathering his strength, he got back on his feet, and with the doctor on one side and the assembly chairman on the other, the old white-haired warrior was led back to the rostrum, while the whole congregation rose in honor of his courage. Then he resumed his appeal. When Queen Victoria calls for volunteers for India, he continued, hundreds of young men respond. But when King Jesus calls, no one goes. Then he paused. 
Once more he continued, Is it true that Scotland has no more sons to give for India? Again he waited. And still no one responded. There was silence. The old man then made a major decision, and under the heavy burden of India's unreached millions, he concluded his call. Very weak, if Scotland has no more young men to send to India. Then, old and decrepit though I am, I will go back, and even though I cannot preach, I can lie down on the shores of the Ganges River and die in order to let the peoples of India know that there is at least one man in Scotland who cares enough for their souls to give his life for them. And as the old veteran turned to leave the pulpit, the silence was broken at last. All over the congregation, young men were getting to their feet and crying, I'll go, I'll go. And I'd like you to consider if Alexander Duff was the guest preacher here today and made this appeal, what would be your response? Will the peoples of the world know that there is at least one man from First Baptist Church who cares enough about their souls to give his life for him? Yet still, there's a small percentage of people who will actually go by going. So what are the rest of us to do? Well, that's obviously our next point. Will you go by sending? Will you go by sending? God has some clear expectations. Certainly, when Jesus Christ, who gave his one and only physical life so that we could be saved, who freely gives us new life in him, eternal life, who left us one thing to do, I'd say it's reasonable for us to conclude that he actually expects us to do it. Amen? Yet we have oftentimes different expectations, don't we? We live in a time described by Laodicea. We expect that some, few, will sacrifice and suffer and go, and that most of the rest of us will just stay home and enjoy the luxury afforded us by living in the wealthiest country this world has ever known. Most will spend excessive amounts on themselves and their pleasures and, oh, occasionally give a few dollars to missions. But can I help you understand something today? The opposite of going is not staying, it's sending. The, op the other choice of going is not it's not staying. If I don't go, I don't just stay. I'm here to send. Because just staying, neither going nor sending, well, that's disobedience. That's sin. It's not unlike the Jews after the captivity, which go back to Jerusalem and are commanded to rebuild the temple, and they built for a while, and then they, they quit. And God sends the prophet Haggai in chapter number 1, verse 2, Thus speaketh the Lord of hosts, saying, This people say, God is quoting the people, The time is not come, the time that the Lord's house should be built. The Jews of that day were saying, Let others go and work. I'm not against it, I'm all for it. Build that temple. It's a good work, good for you guys. Just not me. Just not now. I'm just going to stay here and live. So the Lord responds in verse number 3 and beyond. Then came the word of the Lord by Haggai the prophet, saying, Is it time for you, O ye, to dwell in your sealed houses, and this house lie waste? Now therefore, thus saith the Lord of hosts, consider your ways. 
You have sown much and bring in little. You eat, but you have not enough. You drink, but are not filled with drink. You clothe you, but there is none warm. And he that earneth wages, earneth wages to put it into a bag with holes. Ever feel that way? And maybe the reason is, is you have ignored doing the work God left you here to do, and you're spending all your energy and effort and resources on yourself and your sealed houses. You know, you can fulfill your personal role in the Great Commission without ever relocating. It's by sending. Because sending is how we will obey God's command to go into all the world. Sending is how we can be witnesses both in our Jerusalem and unto the uttermost parts of the world. And if the Apostle Paul is the model for the individual missionary, and he is, then the Philippian church is the model for a supporting church. You see, Paul had a special relationship with the Philippian church. It was not his sending church. That was Antioch of Syria. But he has a special relationship with them. And this relationship I want you to notice in Philippians chapter 4, starting in verse number 10. It says, But I rejoiced in the Lord greatly, that now at the last your care of me hath flourished again, wherein you were also careful, but she lacked opportunity. Not that I speak in respect of want, for I have learned in whatsoever state I am therewith to be content. I know both how to be abased, and I know how to abound. Everywhere and in all things I am instructed both to be full and to be hungry, both to abound and to suffer need. Paul suffered. We saw that, right? But whenever he suffered from a lack of needed supply, he didn't whine and cry about it. He didn't quit. He just trusted the Lord and that's what verse 13 of chapter 4 says I can do all things through Christ which strengtheneth me but the Philippian church they knew about his necessity they didn't even have Facebook they seemed to know somehow what was going on in Paul's life back then they were involved they were informed about the details of his daily ministry so it goes on in verse 14. Notwithstanding, ye have well done that ye did communicate with my affliction. Now ye Philippians know also that in the beginning of the gospel, when I departed from Macedonia, no church communicated with me as concerning giving and receiving, but ye only. For even in Thessalonica you sent once again unto my necessity. There were times in Paul's life when even Antioch wasn't supporting him financially. Only the Philippians. And if we're going to be faithful senders, what will it take for you, each of you, personally and individually, to feel like you personally are sending missionaries? You say, I don't know. Oh, it's a good thing you're here. I'm going to tell you. Number one, give of your treasure. You knew this was coming. Give financially. Give sacrificially. Give above the level of a tithe. Free will giving to the mission. Let me ask you a question. What if we took the mission so seriously that whether we relocated or whether we stayed right here, we believed in equal levels of sacrifice? Consider the life of the individual who leaves it all behind and moves somewhere else. The level of sacrifice required for that guy and his family. What if we took upon ourselves willingly the same level of sacrifice as senders as those who go? 
Paul writes to the Corinthian church, 2 Corinthians chapter 8, Moreover, brethren, we do you to wit of the grace of God bestowed on the churches of Macedonia. We saw Philippi is in Macedonia. How that in a great trial of affliction, in abundance of their joy, their deep poverty abounded under the riches of their liberality. For to their power I bear record, yea, and beyond their power they were willing of themselves, praying us with much entreaty that we would receive the gift and take upon us the fellowship of the ministering to the saints. You see, the Philippian church believed in equal sacrifice. They proved how serious they were about it by getting the gospel to the ends of the earth and and out of their personal deep poverty, the Holy Spirit records. They had this overwhelming, rich liberality, generosity, so much so that even Paul was moved to say, look, y'all, Y'all don't have much. You keep it. I know how to be abased. I know how to suffer need. I can do all things through Christ. Keep your money. And they said, no, you don't understand. You must receive the gift. We must have fellowship in this ministry. You say, amen, that's awesome. I'm all for that. Well, I hope that's what you're saying because God has a word for you. 2 Corinthians, now we're going down to verse 11. Now therefore perform the doing of it. Quit making it just a good idea. Quit having it just be in theory. Quit just being all for it. Actually do it. That as there was a readiness to will, oh yeah, I'm all for it. So there may be a performance also out of that which ye have. For if there be first a willing mind, it's accepted according to that a man hath, and not according to that he hath not. Nobody's asking you to give things you don't have. Face it, y'all, we have a lot. For I mean not that the other men be eased and ye burdened. I'm not saying that we sacrifice it all and live like paupers so the missionary can live it up and, and have it easy. But by an equality, see that word? that now at this time your abundance may be a supply for their want. You know what we have an abundance of in this country? Moolah. (laughs) We do. We're the wealthiest country ever. And even if you're lower middle class, you're wealthy compared to this world. You know what it goes on to say, how this equality works out? Their abundance also may be a supply for your want, that there may be equality. You know what you can't pull off if you never leave here? You can't pull off souls for eternity in Hungary. You can't pull it off. But others can, and you can be a part of that because you partner with them, right? So you can give of your treasures, and number two, you can give of your time and your talents. What if you were connected at a level that you felt a real partnership with the missionary, any particular one, with his work. What if a group of you got together and adopted a field of your very own? Proverbs 31, speaking of the virtuous woman, and the virtuous woman, we understand, is a picture of the church of Jesus Christ. It says, She considereth a field and buyeth it, in verse 16. And with the fruit of her hands, she planteth a vineyard. 
You see, that's what a virtuous woman does. She considers a field. It's going to cost me something, but I'm going to go after it. I'm going to buy it. I'm going to work hard, and I'm going to plant a vineyard. A vineyard, well, that's, that's the vineyard of the Lord. That's the church. We saw that in our certainty conference. What if you sacrifice time in your schedules, your regular weekly schedules, so that you could be connected, so that you could be informed about the details of the particular ministry that you support personally? What if you actually knew what was going on and what was needed? You know how easy that is today with the supercomputer you have in your pocket? What if you really knew what was going on and what was needed? What if you took your vacation time to take trips there to visit, to get to know the people firsthand? That would be a sacrifice. That would be a sacrificial life spent for the mission. You know what God would think of such a life? You don't have to wonder. It's written in Philippians 4.17. Paul says, Not because I desire a gift, but I desire fruit that may abound to your account. But I have all and abound. I am full, having received of Epaphroditus the things which were sent from you, an odor of a sweet smell, a sacrifice acceptable, well-pleasing to God. Which, by the way, when you prove that you are interested in solving God's one and only problem, people lost and dying and on their way to hell, when you show that you're genuinely interested in God's problem, you know what God is? He's interested in your problems. Which is why verse 19 shows up in context saying, But my God shall supply all your need according to his riches and glory by Christ Jesus. And the context of verse 19 is not for every lazy, carnal, selfish, Laodicean Christian. The context is for the person who is so sacrificial in their giving that they don't even have enough to live on. And Paul says, don't worry. You live like that, and my God will take care of your needs. Now, that's a step of faith, and that's a big step, and not all of you are ready for that today. But let me just tell you something. I guarantee that somewhere deep in your soul, you want desperately for God to take care of your problems. and You're tired of you taking care of them. And there's a way that we can see he takes care of them. Not only can it be done, not only has it been done, people are doing it today. I've got one last story, and we'll close. It's the story of a man named Luther Rice. Again, going back to this golden age of missions, when Adoniram Judson sets sail for India, though, of course, he ends up in Burma, there are a few other men with him. One of them is named Luther Rice. And on their voyage over, through the study of the Bible, they see that the congregational church of which they were a part has been teaching about baptism incorrectly. So they decide to be baptized by immersion by the Baptist William Carey upon arrival. Now this presents a dilemma for them as the Congregational Mission Board is funding their missionary work. And they realize that someone must go back and inform the churches of their decision and raise the support that they will need to stay there and minister. Luther Rice at the time is single and he's also dealing with a health issue involving his liver and they decide that he should be the one to be sent back to inform the churches, secure the funding, and then return to the field. But if you read the biography of Luther Rice, you'll find that he never returns to the mission field. But you'll also see that he never lets go of the rope. He becomes a traveling representative and an advocate for, for Adoniram Judson. 
He not only raises funds, but he also recruits laborers and even establishes colleges for the training of more workers. Judson's wife, Anne, writes to Rice on one occasion and thanks him for his commitment to the work and to her husband. In the letter, she says that though Rice and Judson are separated by thousands of miles, their hearts still beat in unison and that they are grateful for the work he's doing. Towards the end of the letter, she gives Luther Rice as big a compliment as any pioneer sender could ever receive. Anne says that she prays that they will bury the bones of him and her husband together because they've worked together as if they were one person. So which will it be, church? Are you going to go? Or are you going to send? Because whichever one it's going to be, can I say that in 2020, let's get busy about it. Let's get busy about it. Which end of the rope are you going to hold on to? If the mission field is the deep well of, of riches and a person's going to hold on to the rope so they can be lowered down into the well, that person better hold on to that rope because his life depends upon it. And if you're going to be a sender and you're at the top of the hole and you're lowering them down, you better hold on to that rope because their life depends upon you. Or are you just going to walk away from the rope altogether? You know, I started by saying we're in the last days, which means that, well, any minute now, the rapture will come and that means the judgment seat will come and, well, we're all going to give an account and, I'll bet you'll want to be holding the rope when it happens. I bet you'll want to. What is your personal strategy? Your personal strategy for fulfilling the Great Commission in this generation? You should have one. You should have one. Whatever the next step would be for you, would you trust God enough this year to take it? Let's pray together and ask him to show us specifically what that would be for each of us. Heavenly